Hey, it's Isabel. Tomorrow, Wednesday, April 28th, Borderline members are getting together from all over the world in our inaugural monthly members call. Join us in global conversation and friendship by becoming a member at join.borderlinepod.com. You'll also receive the episode 48 hours early every week, often in a longer, more in-depth version. You'll get more content, more events, and you'll help me keep Borderline going. So join up at join.borderlinepod.com, and I'll see you tomorrow. Ineffective distribution could allow the pandemic to continue to thrive as new variants emerge. And so this is uh, something that clearly needs uh, course correction. Hi, I'm Isabel Hogal, and this is Borderline. I recorded the interview you're about to hear last Tuesday, and it was like the gods of news really wanted to drive home the symbolism. A few things happened. As we were enjoying a beautiful spring day in London, when outdoor pubs and restaurants reopening was finally no longer a cruel taunt, the US opened up its COVID-19 vaccination program to anyone over 18. That's right, any willing adult can get a vaccine in the US right now. It's easy from that vantage point to think that the worst is behind us. But in fact, that day was, 16 months in, the worst day so far of the pandemic. More than 800,000 new cases and 13,000 deaths in a single day worldwide. Wildly underestimated numbers for the tragedy unfolding in Brazil, in India and elsewhere. And every day since has been worse. To be clear, we're coming up on a million cases a day of COVID-19. The way out, we know it is through universal vaccination. Humanity has shown us its best in developing multiple safe and effective vaccines against the SARS-CoV-2 virus at a record pace. But it's showing us something else, something all too familiar, in how it is sharing or failing to the fruits of that discovery. I called up Tanya Cernucci to discuss the state of the global vaccination campaign and the dangers of vaccine nationalism. She is team lead for global access in the Immunization, Vaccines and Biologicals Department at the World Health Organization. She previously worked at Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. Simply put, her career is to improve access to all vaccines everywhere. Here's my conversation with Tanya Sarnucci, again of the WHO. And please stick around at the end for more information. Could you paint a picture for me of, of what's the state of the vaccination campaign worldwide at this point, which is April 20th? The situation is in constant evolution, but I think uh, it's fair to say there's maybe about uh, 20 countries or so that have not yet been able to introduce the vaccine. Um, else, this was already uh, introduced in, in most countries in the world. But there is clearly uh, a difference in terms of the distribution of doses that we see. So the uh, great majority of uh, doses that have been distributed are distributed in high-income countries, maybe about 50% of the, of the global um, administered doses are going to uh, high-income countries. And, and there's certainly uh, more progress. Uh, in, in some specific settings. We, we've all heard of Israel, of uh, the UK, the US, Chile. Uh, so there are some countries that are uh, much more advanced. And if you look at the current doses administered, you can really see that they're tiered by income. So uh, as you go down the chain from high income countries to upper middle income countries, low middle income countries, and low income countries, um, you, you really see a declining number of doses that uh, have been administered. Mm. 
And to get a sense of, of scale, those you know, high-income countries are concentrated in the majority of vaccines. How much of the world population are they um, you know, compared to the, to the low-income countries? Well, I think uh, what we should uh, look at is the is different factors. They, they certainly represent uh, a, a smaller share of the population, but I think we need to look at also uh, the uh, highest risk groups and the cases and deaths um, that these countries represent. Uh, and if you look at it from that perspective, uh, they are certainly the settings that have been most hit by the pandemic. There's different ways to look at those as administered. So one is income, as we just said, and the other uh, that I think is very relevant for, for us to look at is uh, what is the uh, need uh, that we could maybe think of in terms of cumulative uh, number of deaths, a cumulative number of cases, uh, and also the goals that countries are setting for themselves. And in that sense, we see that uh, the distribution is, is uh, it tends to be focused to, to countries that have had uh, higher needs, but certainly uh, that, that's not fully the case and, and it requires some, some course correction, certainly to cover some needs uh, relative to the doses distributed, for instance, in the Latin American region. Mm. Why, why the, um, the Latin American region specifically? Is that because of the situation in, in Brazil? Uh, no, I mean, we have to fully uh, flesh out the analysis. I'm not pointing to the Latin American region as the single region where such disparity may be visible, uh, but I think it's one uh, that has been incredibly hit by uh, the pandemic and that is proportionally not receiving probably a, a fair share of vaccine relative to need. Uh, but, you know, we need to take a close look at the data to understand this across every single country setting. Mm. What is it that is um, preventing these these countries from accessing the vaccine? Is it that they've been preempted through um, higher prices by by richer countries? Um, what what are the the dynamics there? So this is obviously a very great question, and and uh, uh, there is a lot of work that is going into ensuring a fair and equitable distribution of doses. So as you may, um, I'm sure you know, there's been a, an attempt to set up through COVAX a sort of centralized global procurement mechanism for countries to access vaccines that are, of course, in scarce supply over time. Um, the idea was that the great majority of procurement could happen through these means and that uh, through a fair allocation mechanism that was planned in two phases, the first focus on equality of distribution and the second focus on uh, need, uh, we would be able to mediate distribution of, of doses across the globe. In reality, what has happened is that the great majority of doses that are under contract at this stage, about 80% of the doses are actually being purchased outside of COVAX, uh, so through uh, bilateral deals and other multilateral uh, deals. And therefore, despite the attempt to have an overarching framework for distribution, currently uh, th that distribution is not coordinated according to that framework. And so we are seeing these dynamics that we've described where we have high-income countries that have um, are accessing most uh, of the administered doses and then upper middle income, lower middle income and low income and so forth. And I think to the point I was raising before, 
um, you know, we, we need to take into account that uh, uh, high income settings have been hardly hit by the disease. North America and uh, the European region um, have been hardly hit and they are in need to protect uh, their populations and they are under enormous political pressure to reduce uh, both the human and socioeconomic costs of the pandemic. And so uh, I think it's understandable uh, that countries are trying to protect their populations first and faster through what are more flexible contracts, um, given the caseloads. I don't think um, there is a means to move away from these bilateral or regional contracts. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I think that the lack of coordination that we're seeing across all these existing procurement channels is short-sighted. And this is because we are seeing a lack of access can trigger global declines in, in gross uh, domestic products uh, with trillions of dollars that could be lost and, and uh, a significant uh, burden of these losses that would also accrue to high-income countries. At the same time, we also assume and predict that uh, ineffective distribution could allow the pandemic to continue to thrive as new variants emerge. And so this is uh, something that clearly needs uh, course correction. Mm. I'll, and, and I'll get back to the, those health consequences um, in a minute. But, uh, you know, you say that you understand the need in those countries that have been really badly hit to vaccinate their, their population first. But should wealthy countries be vaccinating they're young people right now when you have countries that haven't seen a single vaccine yet or or where even health professionals or, or elderly people aren't vaccinated yet. So I think we uh, at WHO certainly believe that we really need all countries to be in a position to reduce mortality and severe disease from the uh, SARS-CoV-2 and that countries should be put in the positions to achieve this minimum goal. Uh, at the same time, we have to see uh, the vaccine in context of several other interventions that exist uh, to fight against the disease. And so there are obviously diagnostics and treatments, and there are uh, also non-pharmaceutical interventions. And so we need countries to um, modulate uh, the use of these different interventions for protecting their peoples and their economies. And there's certainly quite a degree of freedom that uh, is necessary on the part of each nation to set priorities, including um, because I think, as we just discussed, they're differently hit uh, by the disease, but also they're uh, differently hit by other diseases. And there are uh, trade-offs, decisions that need to be made, uh, particularly in contexts that are resource limitations. And so some countries uh, may wish uh, to use their human resources, their scarce time and financial resources uh, in, in other health interventions rather than scale up the uh, introduction of COVID-19 vaccines to all populations. So this is, this is a sovereign uh, decisions that each member state will take. And, and I think what is important is that member states uh, are supported with the evidence uh, and information that they need uh, to be able to set their goals. To your point, I think the issue is to ensure that uh, uh, once the goal is set, and particularly the minimum goal of reducing mortality and severe disease, that pretty much all countries in the world are pursuing, uh, that, that this goal uh, uh, can, can be achieved. And, and that requires, as, as I said, it does require 
a more coordinated approach now to distribution of doses. Uh, obviously, the, the challenge is how to get there. I, I, I personally believe very much in two uh, measures to get there. One is, is to uh, have a clear vision and set clear goals and objectives. Uh, for a vaccination strategy across the globe uh, so that we can inform uh, bolder and coordinated investment by both public and private entities. Um, we have seen, I think, for the COVID-19 really unprecedented investments by the public sector. I believe 70% of the cost of, of, of clinical developments were covered by the, by the public sector. Um, incredible, incredible collaboration with private entities and really an effort to move from uh, sequential risk-averse processes from R&D to clinical development to manufacturing regulatory towards parallel processes with, uh, you know, uh, risk-taking behavior in terms of making large investments early in the game where there was a lot of uncertainty on uh, vaccine candidates. Um, and so there's really been a clear will and, and investment that has, has brought us to, uh, you know, incredible achievements on the development of vaccines at record times. I mean, this is normally a, a 10 years in Xavier and 11 months this time. We had, we had uh, several uh, successful uh, candidates, but I think that the goals that countries are now are starting to set for themselves, you were mentioning, uh, you know, the intention of some high-income countries to start vaccinating younger populations um, require further investment, and that investment is is probably worth the game given the the very high economic cost that we have and the stimulus packages that countries have to put in. So I, I think the point is, you know, setting goals, bolder goals to drive investment uh, is something that could get us to a more equal distribution just by increasing what is the available supply for all. And, and at the same time, we need greater collaboration. We need high-level diplomacy between countries. And, and to your point, I think, uh, you know, a goal could be established uh, to reduce severe disease and deaths in all countries before there is a broader vaccine rollout in, in richer settings. Hmm. I, I wonder if if that's you know something that is realistic to expect from some of these countries, because as you said, they're under tremendous uh, political pressure, or if you think we should uh, pretty much just hope that they get done with their vaccination quickly and then put the same level of energy into helping the rest of the world get vaccinated as well. Well, I don't think the two things are mutually exclusive. I think there are agencies uh, uh, that uh, are working hard to tackle the needs of lower income settings. Uh, I mean, this we've seen beyond COVID-19 vaccines. If you look at the past two decades of uh, vaccine distribution across the globe, there's been an enormous progress made to support lower income countries to access vaccines earlier through, uh, you know, the efforts, for instance, of, of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, working closely with, with UN procurement agencies such as the PAHO Revolving Fund or UNICEF, um, and, and working closely, obviously, with WHO on the policy and regulatory and technical sides uh, to really reduce the time lag between introduction in high-income countries and lower-income countries. And this, this has been, uh, you know, a highly successful uh, endeavor. So this is continuing and will continue in the context of COVID-19. 
And at the same time, I think while this is pursued now through COVAX and other means, uh, we should also keep that dialogue open with high-income countries and really join forces to understand better what is that we want to have collective action uh, upon uh, and more collaboration towards gains that will then accrue, as we said, to each country across the globe. Uh, So I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think we have to work on both fronts. You mentioned um, the the massive public investment that's gone into developing these vaccines, as you say, at at an incredible pace, something that's really unseen in human history. Um, Should then vaccines be be a public good? Would it help move things faster if we removed intellectual property rights and, and we could manufacture more easily generic vaccines, especially in the middle income countries or, or lower income countries? So these are very important points. Um, so let me give you some considerations around this. Uh, not just for COVID, but generally, uh, the, the vaccines are supply constrained in part to the te- technologies that are currently used in vaccine manufacturing. So we're talking about very complex biological products um, and often with underestimated complexity of process of scale up um, that deals to delays in availability. We're talking about products that manufactured in product specific facilities uh, and where changeovers of products are cumbersome. Um, and this very much limits the flexibility. You can have technology transfer, changes in production scale, manufacturing technologies and processes, but all of this is costly and takes time, including due to quality assurance and regulatory review that it, that is very, very strict uh, in, in case uh, of vaccines and rightly so. And another consideration is that companies are protected by intellectual property rights and know-how for managing these uh, complex processes. And because they, they are uh, protected by intellectual properties, they know how, because they face uncertain demands relative to low, uh, relatively low prices, they also face the risk of vaccine hesitancy and uh, long-term competition from superior products of potentially lower cost. They fundamentally have quite little incentive to invest in new manufacturing technologies and processes. Uh, or in increasing manufacturing capacities. So you can say that the incentives are not aligned with the maximization of social welfare. And, and this does need uh, some correction, in uh, my opinion, to more incentives and to more public intervention. So we've seen, again, some positive results uh, uh, for COVID-19, but we've also seen it in the past for uh, vaccines like uh, meningitis, for instance. So there is certainly uh, a value to increase both the public investments that can be justified based on the, on the you know, impact and the cost of inaction. And also though, I, I think we need to see uh, probably a more active role in oversight of vaccine markets. And this is being uh, called upon by, by many at, at present stage. So if, if you think of it right now, the current plans for production of COVID-19 vaccines are very uncertain and the allocation amounts and delivery dates are unclear. And so governments and stakeholders are, are actually struggling to make informed and rapid strategic decisions for the public uh, lacking this, this reliable data. I think that moving forward, we do need governments to require more transparency, in manufacturing costs, in capacity, in contracts, in operations. This visibility would then allow governments to strike uh, uh, what needs to be a careful balance between rewarding the private investment, but also ensuring 
there is licensing and technology transfer to enable increased production. There, there's certainly some more work to be done. Uh, WHO had passed a resolution on increasing market transparency, and, and I think there's progress that has been made in that direction, particularly in the case of vaccines, but I think there's more to be done. You talked about the consequences of not vaccinating. So just to kind of um, wrap things up, at, at the rate that we're going today, when would we reach a point of, of um, so-called herd immunity in the world or where you know we'd have a decent number of people everywhere vaccinated? And, and what could be the risk of delaying that day in terms of, of health and economy? So this is the billion-dollar question uh, to, uh, we, to which we clearly don't have an answer at this stage. I think there are too many unknowns to, to provide uh, a definite uh, answer to that question. And it's, it's something that WHO and other immunization agencies are uh, regularly discussing and, and looking at evidence. There is an incredible effort from experts and modeling groups to try and, and, and guide both countries and the global agenda to understand the path forward. At this stage, I think really the focus is, is currently to ensure that we can have both an impact, on, uh, a health impact and, and a socioeconomic impact, focusing on the primary goal of reducing mortality and severe disease. And that is, as I said, laid out as a path in our SH recommendation as a guidance to countries on how to prioritize the scarce supply that they receive. And as you will see, for I mean, you know, several of the countries are in a high a transmission setting. And for, for that high transmission setting, the prioritization is for at-risk uh, healthcare workers and, uh, and at-risk populations, so primarily uh, older populations and populations with comorbidities. Mm. And the, the risks health-wise of this pandemic continuing, is it variants? Is it a continuous sort of closed borders world where, where we're not able to resume trade and, and travel as we used to have? Well, I think there are several unknowns. We know we have effective vaccines and safe vaccines. Uh, we are not yet clear on the duration of protection. So that's one unknown. And with the possibility there of need for booster doses. We uh, have seen uh, variants and we are still trying to get our heads around the ability of these variants to bypass uh, the effect of the vaccine. And so more uh, knowledge needs to be collected on this front. Uh, so there is a risk there and due to that, uh, uh, there may uh, be a need for revaccination of the population if there is no cross-protection by vaccines or some vaccines. Uh, against the variants and assuming the, the virus continues to mutate, which we don't know we are dealing here with, with uh, a new uh, virus. And so there are some uh, unknowns that we can't predict. And there is certainly a risk, as you're correctly pointing out, that different and uncoordinated decisions by uh, different countries could have the negative impact on others, both in terms of access, as we said, but also in terms of trade and travel. I mean, there's a nice uh, report of uh, the International Chamber of Commerce that looks at the economic cost in a highly interconnected economy that can be impacted by effects of the pandemic in different states and, and how particularly open economies could suffer for a disease that is happening and unconstrained uh, in, in other states. So I, I think, you know, these are probably the major risks that we're facing. 
You mentioned safe and effective vaccines. Just just briefly, you are still using the AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson vaccines in your initiative. Yes, of course. Actually, the AstraZeneca vaccine is the vaccine that has been procured for the moment and has been distributed in both the European Medicine Agency and the WHO have been reviewing carefully the evidence and have evaluated that the benefits clearly outweigh the risks uh, for these vaccines. There is uh, clear guidance uh, to continue the use of these vaccines. They are a very powerful tool uh, that we have in, in the fight against this pandemic. And so um, we, we are supporting member states to understand the available information and, and to make their choices under this guidance provided. Okay. Thank you so much um, for your time. Can I um, just ask you if you have a, a kind of a final message that you want to be heard, especially by wealthier nations who hold a lot of the keys here? Sure, happy to. Uh, <laughs> since I have a platform, I think we need to leverage the lessons from COVID-19. We have an opportunity to establish a new paradigm, I think, for vaccine development and access that both takes from the great, great success we've had with this vaccine and also take from the challenges that we are facing. And I think that that paradigm shift is really looking for governments playing a very central role to, first of all, establish early evidence-informed strategic goals and leadership to serve the collective global interest. Second, to shoulder risks and invest aggressively for uh, the needs of today, but also to prepare for future emergencies. The third is to strengthen uh, market preparedness. So we've not discussed this, but I think we're learning that we need um, to leverage the new vaccine technologies that have come up and to establish probably at the regional level manufacturing hubs that can also serve as insurance to be used at time of pandemics. And we need governments to really drive market transparency and oversight as we did discuss. And finally, governments need to work together to really define principles and operational details for collaboration at times of scarcity, as this will enable countries to protect their own citizens, but also ensure that no country is left behind. Mm. Well, thank you so much uh, for your time and for your expertise. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Isabel, for having me. My pleasure. As of this recording, 19 countries, mostly in Africa, are still not reporting a single jab. Israel has the world's most successful vaccination program, but continues to exclude Palestinian territories from its efforts. The UK's campaign has been slowed down because the largest maker of AstraZeneca jabs, the Serum Institute of India, has been instructed to prioritize its domestic markets. Frustrating, perhaps, but the UK refuses to say how many vaccine doses it has exported from its own manufacturing plants the answer is most likely zero. Same story in the US, which is sitting on tens of millions of doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine. The jab has not been approved by US regulators and will likely not be needed there by the time that it is. Yet the country continues to stockpile it and has only donated a fraction to its neighbors, Mexico and Canada. Worse, the US still has an export ban on several vital vaccine ingredients it produces, which threatens to bring global manufacturing to a grinding halt within weeks. Forget morals if you must. The truth is we are not safe until everyone is safe. A virus does not see borders. It will spread, it will mutate, and it will continue to kill. Vaccine nationalism is self-defeating. 
but I fear it is also undefeatable. So if you can get a vaccine, get it. Individual guilt or avoidance is not how we get out of this crisis. Just don't be tempted to go all rah-rah about your country's success or leave your leaders off the hook. There, but for the randomness of our birthplace, are we all. Thank you to Tanya Cernucci. Check the show notes for sources on all of this, more reading and helpful data visualization. And as always, a full transcript is at borderlinepod.com. Sign up for the newsletter at join.borderlinepod.com and consider becoming a member. You'll get the podcast early. You'll get to join our members call tomorrow. Borderline is entirely funded by its listeners, and I'm very grateful for your support. Welcome this week to Julia Guseba. I'm your host, Isabel Rogal. Music is by Offshane. Borderline is a one-lane bridge production. I'll talk to you next week.